content warning. During this episode, we discuss experiences with depression, anxiety, and briefly mention suicide. We acknowledge this content may be difficult for listeners and encourage you to care for your safety and well-being if you choose to listen to this episode. From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center, and by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Welcome to episode four of our series on mental health and medical training and graduate education in collaboration with the MIND Project at Harvard University. Today, we dive into the ways in which institutions can consider creating more accommodating and inclusive research environments. Additionally, our podcast today offers strategies for how you may approach your institution if you feel that your mental health is not being prioritized. We are joined by Dr. Zoe Ayers, Head of Research and Development at Figura Analytics Limited, and Dr. Juanita Limas, Advisor and Research Scientist in Molecular Pharmacology at Eli Lilly and Company. Hi, Dr. Limas and Ayers. How are you? Welcome to the show. Good, thank you. Good. Nice to be here. Great to have you both here. Before we jump in, could you walk us through your career paths, but also how you met each other? My name is Juanita Limas. I'm a first-generation college student. I'm originally from Des Moines, Iowa. Both my parents are Mexican. I'm Mexican-American. I have a very unconventional career path. I went to college. I joined the Peace Corps. I was a former Peace Corps volunteer. I served in Nicaragua for almost three years as a community health education volunteer. Came back to the States got my master's degree, and then taught at a community college for almost a decade before I decided I wanted to go back to school again and get my PhD. So I just finished up my PhD at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill last year and started a great job here at Eli Lilly as an advisor research scientist in the molecular pharmacology group. Hi, I'm Zoe. I have an interesting route to where I am today, I think. So I did forensic science undergraduate degree. And then I went on to do a master's degree, which is pretty typical in the United Kingdom, where I'm from. I did that in analytical science. I then went on to do a PhD in electrochemical sensor development at the University of Warwick, where I really then started to get into diversity and inclusion work and things like that. I then did a postdoc for a year before transitioning out to industry. I worked in the water industry for for a couple of years, and now I'm head of research and development for an industrial company. So I've kind of gone from forensic science, which I thought was going to be my absolute bag, and I hated it, and (laughs) have ended up in a completely different area now, which is more like nanopore sensing technology. So quite an interesting ride to there, I guess. Zoe has been sort of doing uh, mental health work uh, way before I sort of had uh, kind of come into this. I'd been following her on Twitter and she had a series of infographics that she put together about different population groups regarding mental health. So she had an infographic about mental health with research scientists, mental health of graduate students, mental health of PIs. And these infographics were really striking because they were a really good way to sort of capture 
some of the, the issues and the talk that I was starting at my institution at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. So I reached out to Zoe just randomly. I said, hey, you don't know me, <laughs> but I'm a student at UNC Chapel Hill. And could I borrow one of your infographics for a talk that I wanted to have with our department chair? And she said, yes, just make sure that you just credit me. Just put my little name on it and that's fine. And so I did, which then spurred a whole bunch of discussions within my department. And at which point I went back to Zoe and asked her if she had other infographics. She did. It blossomed into this really beautiful relationship between us. And the opportunity came to perhaps write a paper together based on some of her expertise and some of what I experienced. And that's sort of how we kind of came together. I don't know. Did I capture that okay, Zoe? Or was there, oh, I'm gosh, sure I yeah. missed something. The kind of amazing thing about social media and just connecting people. And like, I think we just hit it off straight away, didn't we, Juanita? And we kind yeah. of just, yeah. we we understood that we were experiencing similar but different things. And it was, it was one of those things where it was just, right, we're going to be friends first and colleagues second. And so when this kind of opportunity to write this paper came up, I think, I think we were just like, yes, we're doing this. So yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it wasn't obvious. It was just very organic, but yet it just kind of blossomed into this really nice uh, collaboration and we involved some other people as well. So the paper was just, was a collaborative effort among the, the five of us. Look at social media working the way we hope. <laughs> yeah. Now we'd like to take a moment to tell you about one of our upcoming online courses. From January 18th to March 15th, 2023, we are offering an online course that will introduce you to mixed methods research in the health sciences. The course will cover how qualitative and quantitative data can be integrated to capture the perspectives of patients, providers, communities, and healthcare organizations to answer complex research questions. This course is open to those both in and outside of Harvard University. To learn more and register, click the link in the episode description. Registration ends January 4th, 2023. Thank you and enjoy the rest of today's episode. You published a paper titled The Impact of Research Culture on Mental Health and Diversity in STEM in Chemistry Europe at the start of 2022. Can you walk us through your findings and the four aspects of research that heavily impact mental health? I guess the first thing is that we really wanted to write this paper because we haven't seen anything, any paper really doing an overarching look at STEM in general and talking about mental health. Uh, and the four areas we looked at were bullying and harassment, precarity of contracts, diversity, inclusion and accessibility, and also the competitive landscape of academia. Now, they're not the only four things that impact mental health in academia, but they were four things that the five of us were really passionate about and we wanted to write about. Like for me, I think bullying and harassment was a really important kind of area for us to look at. I know that so many people experience bullying and harassment in academia and mm. what we wanted to do with this paper was really lead with statistics and lead with that data because so often we hear about these things and we people you know are trying to make change and institutions might say well there's not enough data like the data is there and so this this paper was really looking at that data and consolidating it all and saying look this is an issue 
And here are some ways that we propose fixing those things as well. I guess to kind of explore the the four areas a little bit further. So like in terms of bullying and harassment, some of the big ones are like 74% of postdoctoral staff observe bullying behaviour or abuse of power at their institution. Three in four postdoctoral staff seeing that. And about half of the institutions is as part of a CACTUS survey, which was a global survey of researchers, showed that over half of institutions don't have a comprehensive bullying and harassment policy. So the fact that there are huge Mm. things here that need to change that are not necessarily being addressed is kind of one of the reasons we really wanted to explore this further with the paper. Mm -hmm. For me, the diversity, inclusion, accessibility section was something very true and dear to me since I am considered to be underrepresented in STEM. But one of the things that I was really interested in when I was trying to write this paper is other than stating the obvious, it was really important for us to come up with a lot of statistics in a lot of literature to show people what were some of these issues. One of the things that I often struggled with as a as an underrepresented student myself, and I sort of touched on this in the paper, mm-hmm. is that you know it's great to be able to get to a level where you can get your PhD in STEM. But one of the things that I was noticing is that the more degrees that I had, the fewer underrepresented mm-hmm. minorities there were. And so it got a lot lonelier as I started to go up the pipeline. Because of that, it became a lot more difficult and challenging to be able to see myself as an academic, to see myself as a PI, because there is that sort of idea that it's easier for you to be able to see yourself doing something if you see others looking like you. And I realized, especially in graduate school, that there were not a lot of PIs that looked like me at all. It was something that I was really, I really wanted to address. There was another section in the paper that we talked about, which was the the competitive landscape of sort of academia. I noticed this a lot as a student myself that you sort of set up this hyper competition between graduate students, there's competition between PIs, there's competition between schools and departments. I realized as I was going through school, it just, it wasn't fun anymore. I started losing my passion for science. I came into academia or at least to my PhD program fully anticipating that I was going to be a PI and run my own lab. I got a HHMI Gilliam fellowship. I wanted, I was, you know, Mexican-American. I was first in my family to get to high school, first to get to college. I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to really make a difference. But it was, it was my experience during my PhD that profoundly changed me. It was that coupled with the suicides of some of some dear friends of mine that happened during my PhD that really sort of spurred me to sort of think about why some of these issues were coming up and, and, and uh, to kind of look to uh, Zoe to see if we could, if I could find an ally and somebody else to not only talk about this, but, but come up with some real solutions. Wow. This is incredible work to even be able to talk about. And then even you both talking about your lived experience. And I'm wondering if there's any more you have to kind of unpack in this space. What do you want from the paper and kind of where do you want it to go beyond this for you as individuals? And even as you think about this work that you've been doing, the experiences that you've had, the colleagues that have also experienced this, what do you see in in that space? I think for me, whenever I'm doing mental health work, it's always about reaching just one person. And if one person feels less alone by reading this paper and recognizing themselves in what we're talking about, then that's a win for me. And you know, we never truly know the impact of the work that we do, but we have had some fantastic feedback around this. You know, we've seen people doing journal clubs based on this paper. So actually going into their research environments and boldly being like, no, we're not going to talk about science today. We're going to talk about this and how mental health 
really ties in with with science and and things like that so the impact has been really important to me I completely agree. I would also further that and push a little bit. In fact, I've had these these conversations here at my company where it first started. In fact, within the first month and a half, some of the senior VPs had gotten wind that I had published this paper at the end of my PhD and they used it as part for a journal club here in industry for senior level VPs to talk about. And they were talking about, you know, this paper just got published, et cetera. And they, and they used it as sort of some talking points But I would also like to see if in an ideal world, you always talk about this idea of mental health being Mm destigmatized. I would like the conversation, daily conversations to be centered around, for example, if you have to go to see a therapist, you know, if we have to leave early, for example, somebody has to leave early from work and they go to the dentist, they say, hey, I'm leaving work early. I need to go to my dentist. I would like to see it normalize to say, hey, I'm leaving early. I need to go talk to my therapist Mm -hmm. and that be okay. But, you know, we're currently now in a situation where we don't do that. And I know many people, you know, they leave early, but they don't talk about where they're going. Not that I need to know where you're going, but I would like it to be normalized as, you know, I'm going to get my car checked. I'm going to get my hair done. I'm going to go talk to my therapist today. It's my weekly therapy appointment. Uh, We're not there yet. And that's where I would really like to push us as a society to get there. It's, it's hard. It's, and I, and I fully admit it's hard. There's a lot of cultural aspects that are different. Different cultures think very differently about mental health, but the more we talk about it, the more it becomes normalized. And I'm, I'm glad we're at least here having this podcast and, and talking about this paper. The thing that excites me is that we're still in STEM, right? We're still doing stuff. We're, you know, we're starting to lead teams and lead people. And so we can be that change as well. I think publicly publishing something like this and being like, you know, this is where we're going to hang our hat and this is where we're going to talk about these things. The more confidence it's also given me to be like, yes, I am going to a therapy appointment at three o'clock, 3 p.m. on a Friday. And so (laughs) like it is it is that sort of thing where it's like, no, 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 I'm looking after me and that's that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. I really appreciate you even saying the part about now you're leading teams, leading through change about changing the way your company's maybe operate or how they've done work before. So you both started out in academia and then you transitioned to industries. So what culture differences have you noticed in respect to mental health in these two spaces? I turn my phone off on Friday (laughs) evening and I don't turn it back on until Monday. Um, And I actually have a work phone. Right, Um, (laughs) right, right. Yeah. nothing, Nothing major goes wrong if I don't work a weekend. And I think for me, when I was in academia, again, I really wanted to be a professor one day uh, and I probably will never be that now. And that's something that I've had to come to terms with. But even if I hated where I worked, then I would find another job somewhere else. I don't have that, that worry that perhaps I might not be able to get tenure because I've not stayed somewhere. I can just choose to do what's best for me. I will tell you, I can echo um, all of those sentiments, although I will be quite frank and honest in that, you know, I'm eight months out from starting my position where I'm at. And I, I'm still struggling with this wanting to work on the weekend. That being said, I've had kind of a wake up call because when I joined this company, one of the first things my supervisor said was like, you can't, it's not that you can't work on the weekend. Like you can physically be here and do experiments if you want to, but we don't want you to. And here's why. And they basically gave two specific reasons. Number one, more importantly, it's a legal liability, right? So it's a legal liability. If you're in the lab 
doing experiments, you get into an accident, something happens, what's going to happen? And I said, but in academia, nobody cared. <laughs> you know, in academia, it's like a badge of honor. If you come in on the weekend, you're supposed to, you know, thump your chest and say, oh, you know, my gosh, I, I, I was I was doing tissue culture all weekend. I had a, you know, whatever, you know, and it's okay. And, I, and I'm sure there's legal liabilities and I, I know there are, but it's just, it's just, you don't talk about it in industry. That's a huge thing. So there's number one, it was, it was discouraged, but also my supervisor told me, and, and he's had to tell me this multiple times, and I don't know why it's not sticking, but he's, you know, he's had to tell me, you know, if you work on the weekend, it's, it's your choice. You're, you're a grown woman. You can do that, but you are going to burn out. You cannot sustain that for very, very long. And you are an investment. We hired you to do a job for this company. And with this investment, we have to at least take care of you and think about your mental health. So if you continue to work on the weekend, you are eventually going to get burned out. And we are, you know, like I said, we're Eli Lilly. We're in the process of, of, of trying to bring medicines to market and trying to help patients. If I'm burned out all the time, I don't do good work. And if I don't do good work, it could be really bad for some of the drugs that we're trying to develop. And that then that hurts patients later on. It's this, this translational aspect that I'm getting in industry that I did not get in academia that makes taking care of myself more important because now I have to think about patients. Whereas in academia, I, I didn't uh, think about patients. It was more about the novelty of what I was studying and you know it was really cool what I was studying. So that for me has been really, I'm, I'm still struggling with that because it's not, it's not easy to turn off my my brain on the weekend and, and not want to work. Although I am getting better about it. <laughs> they just keep telling me gently every week. Now you're not going to, you know, like it's, it's, you're not coming in. No, I'm not coming in. I might get online, but I'm not coming in. Hopefully it'll, yeah, I'll come around. <laughs> I, I like in my first industry job was working for an American company. And so the time zones were different. And so my boss would still be working when I was meant to be at home. And so he would call my desk and I'd pick up the phone like a good a good worker and be like, hello, it's Zoe. And he'd be like, why are you working? It's 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 6 p.m. Go home. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what do I do? And then I realized over time it was like, no, you're doing this to yourself. Like, it's OK. Like, do something else. Your whole worth is not tied to to the mm -hmm. research. And I think that's mm -hmm. been probably the biggest thing for me finding my worth elsewhere and realizing that my science is a huge part of me, but it's not all of me. That's a pretty powerful thought and statement for yeah. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's it's hard to wrap your, your mind around. For me, it, it still is. But my science is way better now, now that I'm actually, I actually take at least a day on the weekend and just not do anything. It is, I, it really is uh, true. <laughs> I just, it's just taking a while for it to stink in. So, yeah. I like to think that there are pockets of academia that allow this sort of thinking as well. I mean, like academia should think that the brain is the most important part of us, really. Right. Like we have to look after that. And so I do think there are places where there is more space to 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 be a little bit more human and less like a robot, I guess. Um, or at least I'd like to think it's changing that way. Well, what are some things institutions can do to create a more accommodating an inclusive research culture. I could speak about this until the cows come home. So <laughs> me too. Me too. There's a whole bunch. <laughs> I was like, oh boy, how much time do we have? 
<laughs> there's a lot of things. I mean, that that that's the beauty of of these this discussion, and that's the beauty of this paper is that it's you know we we don't pretend to solve everything, and we can't solve everything, but we we try to at least at the very end of the paper to give some what I call low hanging fruit examples that may or may not apply to your institution, but may give you some food for thought or spur some discussions to try to you know change things at your institutions. You know, a lot of different things. So. One of the things that we did not mention in the paper that I, I've always wondered about, and that a paper just came out actually in June about this, is this idea of reverse mentoring. You think about a typical normal mentoring situation where you have a PI, a senior scientist, and then you have a junior trainee, and that's considered to be mentoring. Um, and so the idea is, is that there's a flux of ideas that goes, you know, the PI knows how to navigate the, the field, the PI knows who are the who's who, and the PI can tell you how to design experiments. And then you learn from that, and then you grow, and then you leap. Well, there's also a reverse mentoring aspect where, in fact, the trainee could, in fact, teach the PI some things as well. And this, also, this in particular, I think, resonates with a lot of students that are underrepresented. And the reason why I say this is because the majority of, of PIs in academia, at least in the United States, are not underrepresented. They are majority population PIs. And so we're coming into a situation in particular where the population is changing, at least in the U.S., where it's becoming more and more diverse. And these students are eventually going to hopefully make it into the STEM pipeline, but we're going to see a dramatic shift in the, the what the PhD student will look like in another 30, 40 years, right? And so I think there's a, a really great opportunity for potential for this sort of reverse mentoring aspect of it. And I can think of my situation, my PI was a white woman, but I'm sure I taught her a lot of things about what it was like being, you know, a first generation student. My concerns that I had in graduate school were some of them were very unique to her, things that she hadn't thought about, but things that were very real that affected how I developed as a scientist. And I would like to think that I taught her as much as she taught me. There's some things around that that, that institutions could start looking at and start having some dialogues about this sort of reverse mentoring. I have some other ideas, but I want to give Zoe a chance to, to talk. I think for me, one of the things that I see routinely from, from institutions when it comes to inclusive research culture is that people are waiting for this big punch of data that is just going to be like, right, this is a problem and this is in your face and this is, we need to fix it now. And that data is already there. And so institutions need to be looking at this data. And um, sometimes institutions can also hide behind generating more data. So more surveys, looking into things um, and trying to kind of get a grasp on their own department. But what we what we know is that a lot of these things are mirrored across countries, across departments. And so really it's, it's saying actually recognizing that some of these things are issues and actually acting on those. And in the same sense, in terms of data, often if, it, if it's a marginalized or minority group, then those data experiences may be small. So we might not have a huge amount of data saying this is difficult because we've only got a few of those individuals in positions, right? So we can't say, oh, well, there's not enough data for us to act on that. We need to say, well, actually, we have data, whether it be it quantitative and statistics or qualitative accounts, we need to act now. And that's what I really want to see institutions doing and saying, right, we are going to go in and change these things because that needs to be done. Even things like tenure, 
you know, have have mental health discussions or have sort of initiatives that you start as PIs, have it built into a tenure dossier. Even in industry, I'm thinking about eventual promotion later on. And as a part of your dossier, you are encouraged to, to sort of be involved in volunteering in the community, mental health initiative. You're encouraged to do these things. You're not, you know, supposed to do it 100% of the time, but as part of a well-rounded dossier and well-rounded package, you know, they don't want just robots and scientists to just only think about data. We're in the business of trying to help patients. So we need to be well-rounded scientists. And so it's openly talked about, um, at least in industry. And I think institutions could also be thinking about things like that as well. There's a lot of different things that um, institutions could be doing. I think it all comes down to sense of belonging, right? So if anyone feels othered, and doesn't feel like they are part of the academic system, that needs to change. And so addressing anything that makes people feel othered is a really, really important thing to do. And that's kind of looking at institutions from a very holistic perspective and being like, right, okay, is it precarity of contracts? Is it bullying and harassment? Is it mental health support in general? All of those things have to come together to make things more inclusive. We often talk about mental health as the problem of the individual. Mm. And we don't talk about mental health as a problem of the, the system, mm-hmm. that the system itself has a mental health issue. We think about individual people having mental health issues, but you cannot talk about individuals unless you talk about the system itself. So what are things that we could be doing to try to change what is wrong with the system? Sometimes people don't want to have those conversations. It makes them uncomfortable. Sometimes they don't want to admit, hey, we don't have enough resources on campus We only have two mental health counselors to deal with, let's say, 300 students. Mm -hmm. There's a problem. Why don't we try to do something about that? Well, we don't have any money. Well, you have money for other things. You know, like they always say, like, you know what is a priority for somebody if you look at their budget. So you look at the budget of where people and where these institutions, you know, what they're spending their money on. They're not spending their money on mental health. Then maybe we need to have a conversation as to why that why that is and talk about changing that. There's a lot of different things that we could talk about, but, you know, those, these are things that sometimes make people really uncomfortable. I think a lot of it also comes down to institutions wanting to log that they've done something rather than do something because they actually want to make change. Yeah. Check the box. Yeah. And so, again, it has to be done in consultation with academics that need that support and things like that. So it's not just being done just to tick a box. The comment you just made about the system versus the individual, that can be translated and, and used in a lot of different spaces talk about a lot of different things and honestly I could talk to you all for a lot longer <laughs> topic because I think it's very interesting and mental health is incredibly important and as we come to the close of, of this podcast what advice would you give to someone who feels their institution isn't doing enough to prioritize mental health and kind of in concert with this question what role do grassroots movements play in this scenario So I guess to start with, if you feel like your institution isn't doing enough to prioritise mental health, I would say one of the real things that have helped me, again, kind of started off the podcast with this, is social media is out there for you to be able to connect with other individuals if you are struggling, particularly if we find ourselves at an intersection. So, you know, we might be kind of intersect several different marginalised characteristics the less likely we are to find people like us at our institutions. So social media really helps with that. 
so yeah first of all finding your community and connecting with those individuals because they might have done some of the work for you so that you can then translate and use that in your own institution i'm a big fan of not reinventing the wheel if that information is there the other thing is that the only real way that we drive change is by grassroots movements because we have to say that this is an issue and we need to speak up about these things now we can't make change without senior individuals kind of feeding into that so it has to be a a team effort between grassroots efforts and senior management but it is again just saying this is an issue and we need to talk about it but also I want to caveat that with mental health is a particularly difficult topic to talk about and to discuss in, in environments and you you don't need to drive the change if you don't feel comfortable driving that change I think there'll always be other people driving that change. And I think the most important thing with mental health is protecting your own mental health. And if you're in a good space, then you can actually help others. Yeah. When you said that last part, that reminded me of the put on your oxygen mask first, you know, so what you're you're going down in a plane and the plane's crashing, you know, what do you do? You put on your oxygen mask first, even before your own child, you put your oxygen mask on first before you can help everybody else. That is incredibly important. And I will say that this resonates with me personally, because this is how I actually got dialogue started at my institution. We were not talking about mental health in my department at all. We were just, you know, going along. We're great department. Students were, you know, plugging along in their, in their uh, labs. But if you, if you talk to students individually, we all were just going through a lot, some environments more toxic than others. And it wasn't until unfortunately, one of my dear friends took her life that it really spurred me to I wrote a letter. Um, I was a part of HHMI, a Gilliam Fellow, and I wrote a letter to HHMI, and I got other Gilliam Fellows to help me write this letter to try to start talking about mental health among underrepresented minority students getting PhDs in STEM. And it was it was those discussions where I found allies, other students that were also struggling throughout the country. We wrote a, a letter to HHMI where we had a year long. Uh, conversations that then spurred all kinds of changes within the HHMI Gilliam application process. So now it's built in that you are required to go and think about what are the mental health resources that you have at your institution. It's built into the to the application as well that the PIs also have to write a statement about it. There were a whole bunch of other changes that we got, which then also spurred me to have conversations at my own home institution. Unfortunately, like Zoe was saying, it does take a lot of grassroots actions Sometimes that falls on the population groups that really don't need to be taxed anymore. I can tell you just, you know, I, some, there were times in grad school, I got tired of having to start this and start that and start this. And I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to get my PhD, <laughs> but at the same time, I'm like, if I don't start it, nobody's going to start it. And this is a problem, but it's really nice to be able to see sort of things blossom and, and things kind of grow organically. So there is value in these sort of grassroots movements, but like Zoe was saying also, it's incredibly important to get buy-in from key allies as well. It's not enough just to be able to just talk about these issues. You need to have buy-in from your department chair or from a dean, somebody. So you need to have somebody's ear that is, is on your side that at least understands and can kind of move the ball forward for you, open doors um, or be a sponsor, if you will. That's incredibly important. Thank you both. It has been such a pleasure having this conversation yeah. with both of you. And honestly, we look forward to hearing more about the work that you're doing in this space and having you back. So thank you. Great. Thanks Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community and beyond. We are always looking to connect and collaborate with the research community and would like to hear from you. Please feel free to email us at onlineeducation.catalyst.harvard.edu to inquire about being a guest on the podcast.